In order to explain these events, thank you, Kurt, those that we just read about, the Apostle Peter appeals to a passage from the prophet Joel about the last days. The apostles have spilled into the street, proclaiming God's mighty deeds in foreign languages. Because, Peter says, the last days have come upon us. The end is at hand. But how and why have the last days arrived? Because the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, as Peter will explain later. Absolutely central to the Easter message is that Jesus' resurrection from the dead, that in Jesus' resurrection from the dead, something new has begun. The course of human history has been interrupted. It's been turned on its axis and been given an entirely new direction. Now, when one hears the phrase, the last days, what probably comes to mind is the left behind books or a dingy homeless man on the street holding up a sign that reads, the end is nigh. And that's not necessarily the way scriptures, the scriptures depict the matter. Rather, according to the apostles, the last days are not about the destruction of the world, but about a new beginning that is given to the world in Jesus' resurrection from the grave. The empty tomb, in other words, is the all-decisive, all-important turning point in history. One age draws to a close as another begins. And the resurrection is sometimes hard to understand, even for Christians. And it becomes that way when we take it to be a story merely about Jesus. He's risen, okay, I'm glad to hear it. But what does this one man's resurrection have to do with me? That's a legitimate question to ask. But the scriptures tell us rather than being a story about one individual man, Jesus' story is a universal story. From his birth to his ascension back to the Father and everything in between, the events of Jesus' life have to do with all of us. And that's why the scriptures sometimes call Jesus the last Adam. The first Adam, through his sin, plunged us into this mess, the last Adam, through his obedience, has brought, about, brought us out of it. So both the first Adam and the last Adam are in this sense representatives for the whole human race. In other words, Jesus, the last Adam, acts on behalf of the human race as its head and representative. His life, in other words, is not only about him, but about all of us. It involves our destiny, our future, and our hopes and dreams. And in 1 Corinthians, the only sustained passage on the resurrection in Scripture, the Apostle Paul calls Jesus' resurrection from the dead the firstfruits. Jesus' resurrection, in other words, comes before the rest of the harvest. It announces the season to come. It's something like the early flowers that bloom before all others. Their green shoots and budding bulbs announce the season. Spring is here. And essentially, what we are being told is that what happened in Jesus, the first fruits, 
will eventually happen to the entire creation. It too will be resurrected. Jesus' resurrection from the dead, therefore, is a prefiguring, a hint of what's to come for the entire universe. Or to put it another way, Jesus' resurrection is a glimpse of where the good creator is leading his creation. What God has done for the man on the cross, bringing him back to life and uniting him to himself, he intends to do for the universe that he's made. And looking at Jesus' resurrection, it's not simply the resuscitation of a corpse. Jesus is not raised from the dead simply to continue life as normal and then die again. Otherwise, his resurrection would be no different from Lazarus' resurrection or Jairus' daughter's resurrection. They were indeed brought back from the dead, but only to return there in a short while. It was a miracle, there's no doubt about that, but in the end it was nothing more than that. It was just a miracle. And that's not what we celebrate today, just a miracle, a life coming back from the grave. The resurrection is much larger, more incomprehensible than that. The scriptures tell us that instead Jesus is raised to an utterly different kind of life. The Apostle Paul calls it the newness of life. In the resurrection, a new dimension of human experience is opened up. Something new, something unexpected, something beyond the limits of our imagination. Jesus has not returned to normal human life. Rather, he's entered upon a different life, a new life. He's entered the very breadth of God himself. And so consider the scripture's testimony that Jesus was raised from the dead to sit at the right hand of God. What does that mean? That a man is raised from the dead and goes to sit at the right hand of God. It means that the man Jesus is exalted to share in God's authority, in God's power, and in God's glory. It means, in other words, that Jesus' life post-resurrection participates in the very life of God. In some sense, utterly beyond our capability to comprehend, human life is united to the divine life. Or as Peter says in his second epistle, that our lives partake in the divine nature. Just before Jesus was crucified in the garden, this is exactly what he prayed for. He asked the Father that we might be one as Him and the Father are one. And so remember, what happens to Jesus, this new life that He's given, somehow prefigures what will happen to the entire universe. The Creator intends that His creation would share in His life, that it would possess something of His own beauty and joy and immortality. In 1 Corinthians 15, the passage that we already mentioned, the Apostle Paul expresses it this way. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, so that God may be all in all. That God may be all in all. It's a picture 
of creation reconciled to its creator. The old division between heaven and earth is broken down. God dwells with man and man dwells with God. Perfect harmony, perfect beauty, and everlasting life. And when the prophets of the Old Testament attempt to depict this glorious future, they take metaphor to its extremes. A wolf dwelling with the lamb, deserts blooming into lush gardens, man's weapons of war being melted down and fashioned into farming tools. But perhaps it might be better It might be that this future is better understood in terms of what it's not than what it is. Because who can rightly speak about what they've never experienced? Our lives in this age are always tainted by sin and separation from God. In the negative terms, resurrection life is no longer bound, no longer held by the limits of death and sin. As the scriptures say in Romans chapter 6, Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. The future that Jesus' resurrection points to is one in which every disastrous consequence of sin, mourning, crying, pain, and even death itself will be erased from the picture. Through Jesus' his death and resurrection, The Creator has begun something unimaginably new. Greater than we can possibly imagine. And the picture the Scriptures give to us about the creation's renewal comes from Revelation chapter 21. Many of you are familiar with this passage. Verses 3 and 4 it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And He will dwell among them and they shall be His people And God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. The picture presented to us that this healing is depicted as is of the creator himself stooping down to wipe tears from our eyes. Broken families, crushed expectations, lost children, delinquent parents, and whatever evil thing that happens in this world, the world in which these things are possible will be done away with. The first things, the scripture says, will pass away. And this is what it means to be living in the last days. Where Peter says, these signs that you see, it means we're living in the last days. This is what it means. This age, the one that we currently inhabit, defined and constituted by sin and death, is passing away. And coming on its heels is nothing less than the healing of the world. Or as the scriptures say, the new creation. The Revelation 21 passage continues, verse 5, And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, Behold, I am making all things new. The creation that's grown old and decrepit in sin will be renewed and be remade in God's love. And indeed, we too will put on the freshness of spring. 
Now I wonder, does a promise that grand, of that magnitude, sound unbelievable? Old jalopy driving by. Now I hope so. I hope that sounds unbelievable. Because it captures the sheer magnitude of the resurrection. But, cannot the one who created the world also recreate it? Cannot he who fashioned human life open human life to an entirely new existence? Can there really only be what there has always been? Is it that in the end, all our hopes for paradise are lies to shelter us from reality? Or, could it be that in fact it is all true? That indeed all things will one day be made new? But the Easter message, its promise of healing and restoration, implies something, does it not? If the purpose of Jesus' resurrection is that all might be healed, the implication is that all are not well. Have you heard the legend of the rider who crossed the frozen lake? He drunkenly crossed over what he suspected to be an open space. And when he reached the opposite end and was told what he had done, he broke down horrified. This is our situation when the Easter message is preached to us. We hear that Jesus has acted to renew the world. And in that moment, we are like the terrified rider. The revelation of God's goodness brings with it the knowledge of our sin. The light of the resurrection exposes our own darkness. The understanding that God has brought healing shows us that we are in need of healing, that we are deathly ill. You might compare our condition to that of someone living with a chronic illness. They have been in great pain so long that it's become normal. They no longer know what it means to be healthy. And spiritually speaking, we've become so accustomed to sin, to life apart from God, that it's normal to us. Our hearts have become hardened, and therefore, we don't know that we're like the rider crossing the lake in mortal danger. We've forgotten that the gnawing emptiness is not normal. We have made peace with our sin in this life. But the Easter message comes along and exposes our true condition. Jesus tells us in the book of Revelation, remember from where you have fallen. We might be content with our condition, reconciled to our place in the depths, but the resurrection comes along and dispels all that nonsense. In being shown the heights to which God intends to exalt us, nothing less than glory and immortality, we are shown the depths in which we currently live the squalid condition that we think is somehow normal and good. So the resurrection tells us that things, and not just things, but people too, are tragically broken. So broken, in fact, that they are in need of nothing less than resurrection. So turn again to our primary passage and hear Peter's words to his audience. Verses 22 and 24. Men of Israel, listen to these words Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, 
just as you know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan of, and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Peter is not speaking to a neutral audience. And it's not an innocent audience either. It is they, those whom he addresses, who put Jesus to death. You nailed him to a cross, he says, by the hands of godless men. In other words, those listening are not passive bystanders. They are involved, and in some way they are responsible for what happened to Jesus. And here, once more, that familiar theme comes up once again. Jesus' story, his death and resurrection, is a universal story. Peter's words are not merely directed at his original audience, bound by time and space, but they speak to us today. We too, in one way or another, however great or small, bear the responsibility of putting Jesus to the cross. He is there because we are the way we are. Jesus' death then prompts us to admit to ourselves that we have played a part in making this mess. The world is the way it is because we have had a part in it. We are victims in this, to be sure, but also when this cannot be overlooked, we are perpetrators, in some sense, accountable for Jesus' death. And though that, our responsibility for the crucifixion can make today, Easter Sunday, quite a fearful thing. Why? Because we put Jesus to death, but God raised him up again. God, in other words, reversed our verdict. He overturned our decision against Jesus. We decided against Jesus, but he decided against us in raising Jesus from the dead. The one whom we judged and condemned is raised from the dead to become our judge. As the, as the Apostle Paul says, God has fixed a day in which, in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Those that Peter originally addressed, who themselves put Jesus to death, understood the implication of his words. They stood condemned, opposed to God himself. And so they say in verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all those who are far off, as many as the Lord will call, uh, will call to himself. And so I said that because of Jesus being raised from the grave by the Father. His resurrection can be a fearful thing, but it doesn't have to be. Jesus has indeed been raised from the dead to become humanity's judge, yet that fact is not presented to us as a threat, but instead as a promise and as our hope. We would expect the victim become judge to return and condemn those who condemned him, but he doesn't. 
Instead, the message preached to them and to us is one of forgiveness. Though we are guilty, we are offered pardon. And indeed, that's the ultimate reason Jesus went to the cross. Peter told us that we nailed him to the cross, but just before that he said that he was delivered over by the predetermined plan of God. Again, at its core, the Easter message is that God has acted in the death and resurrection of Jesus to release mankind from the burden of sin. The scriptures say, God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This age, the age of sin and death, is awaiting eternal destruction and God's righteous judgment. There's nothing left for a world like ours where all these evils can happen, where all these wrongs can be perpetrated, there's nothing left for this world except the lake of fire to be done away with. But we can be saved from it. Indeed, the Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus gave himself for our sins that he might rescue us from this present evil age. God's going to do away with it, but he doesn't want to do away with us. The judge is willing and able to release us from our crimes, to rescue us from the coming judgment, and to usher us in to new life, to the new age and life everlasting. So the question is, how does one receive this offer of forgiveness? The passage says, repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. God has moved toward us in forgiveness, and we move toward Him in repentance. That's our motion back to God's goodness. It means repentance, quite simply, to change your heart. A heart that has been turned away from God, in deed and in word and in thought, is to do an about-face and march the opposite direction. It speaks most fundamentally to the inner change and enlightenment that comes when a person understands that they are not right with God. And when that knowledge comes to a person, when they understand that they are on the wrong side of things, they ask, like those whom Peter spoke to, what shall I do? What shall I do? Turn around, change, and come back to the Lord. As God spoke to the nation of Israel long ago, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. And most importantly, to receive God's forgiveness, one must believe upon Jesus and be baptized in his name. Belief is not merely mental agreement or rational understanding. It's more than that. It involves the heart. It is a trust, a confidence, an allegiance that one gives to Jesus. And that trust is the key which opens the storehouse of God's forgiveness. And so here's the point. Only if we are prepared to accept Jesus' diagnosis, admitting our guilt, turning toward Him in repentance and faith, can we share in His treatment the restoration of all things. The work is done. These things will come to pass. The matter is whether or not we will humbly accept God's invitation. As Moses once said to the Israelites many centuries ago, 
I call heaven and earth to witness against you today, and I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, by holding fast to him. And then, and we'll draw things to a close with this, the last promise of the Easter message is that we are given the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.38 Repent and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What is the gift of the Holy Spirit? Quite simply, God's life imparted to us. The life promised to us in the age to come is given to us here and now in advance in and through the presence of the Spirit. And just as Jesus' resurrection is called the first fruits, so is the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul says, Romans chapter 8, verse 23, And not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Like Jesus' resurrection, the Spirit's present within us is a foreshadow of things to come. The virtues that He implants within us, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, and so on, are glimpses of the eternal life that have bled into the present. That's why the Spirit's also called a pledge in the Scriptures. The Spirit's present within our lives, animating us in joy and love, is God's down payment, as it were that we have the first fruits of the Spirit in this age is a pledge, a promise of God that we will share in the Spirit's harvest in the age to come. And what will this harvest be like? Again, it's hard to say, but we can say this. If the Spirit's love is rich and satisfying in this life, still marred and stained by sin, how much greater when in the next we are brought into complete union with God? And because of this, not only does the Spirit's presence bring us peace and joy, but longing. Paul says, we having the first fruits of the Spirit grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. The idea is that given a taste of life to come by the Spirit, our appetites have been awakened. And this, one's awakened desire or something that cannot be found in this life, is proof that the thing itself is real. That the thing they desire is real. It would be a strange thing if no food and drink existed in this world, but humans still had the sensations of hunger and thirst. A man's hunger and his thirst proves that he comes from a race where the body is prepared by such means and inhabits a world where such things exist. In the same way, doesn't our longing after something this world cannot give us, at least in a sense, point to a place where that longing is fulfilled? And it seems at certain high points in our lives that that longing is almost satisfied. But looking back to those moments, at least in my life, it's not the moments themselves that bring happiness, but what comes through those moments. In those moments, whatever they are for you, it's as if something comes in from the other side. A bit of heaven slips into earth. C.S. Lewis describes those moments this way. For they are not the thing itself, 
There are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never visited. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to follow Lewis's analogy, is the thing itself. On that Sunday morning, the glorious purpose for which the human race was created was realized in Christ Jesus. All our hopes and dreams assured to be real and true. And so on this side, our lives are characterized by longing more than they are by satisfaction. It is true. But today is Easter. This day is not about hope deferred, but about hope realized. It's not about longing, but about the fulfillment of every desire. In Christ, the future has come. The future is here. And I pray that, at least in some small way, the beauty and glory and joy of the resurrection life makes itself known in your hearts today. All glory be to Thee, Jesus, true man and true God, Redeemer and Lord. Let's pray.